For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Ironic, we talk about power. We don't quite have power in our sound system this morning. But we're going to have power together this morning. The air conditioners are on. It got hot outside while we were worshiping. We have reached the end of our journey through the Lord's Prayer this week. Right as we enter another journey, the walk with Jesus into the final week, into Jerusalem, up to that upper room, through the Garden of Gethsemane, through the Via Dolorosa, up the cross. And then, well, what happens next, you'll have to be here next week to find out what happens after the cross. I don't want to spoil the ending or, well, the beginning. But it's almost as if we planned it this way, ending the Lord's Prayer, this triumphal, entry, uh, this triumphal ending of this prayer, right when we're standing on the streets of Jerusalem, as the people gather to welcome their triumphant king, as they shout, Hosanna, kingdom, power, and glory on the streets of Jerusalem, waving palm branches, laying their cloaks on the road, as Jesus rides in triumphantly on a donkey. A donkey. Jesus rides triumphantly on a donkey. Kingdom, power, and glory on a donkey. Now, I've been to a lot of prayers, a lot of parades in my life. We lived in New Orleans for two years, and from January 6th until Fat Tuesday, it's pretty much solid parades. When you see the Mardi Gras parades almost daily, you, you kind of get used to the way things roll. There's always a procession, there's candy, there's stuff they throw. But at the end of the parade is always the king of the parade, the captain, the queen of the parade, sitting a hot, uh, on top, the highest uh, float in the whole parade. They don't just parade on Mardi Gras, though, in New Orleans. There's a parade for everything, St. Patty's Day, Fourth of July, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas and about every weekend in between, always a parade, always the captain of the parade, the king riding high, but never, ever, ever does that king or queen or captain ride on a donkey. Kings don't ride on donkeys. Poor, peasant, pregnant women traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem ride on donkeys, but not a king. And it wasn't that there was just no other riding animal available to Jesus that Sunday. It wasn't that there weren't other options. There were. Jesus hand-picked this donkey. Matthew tells us the story. Go to the village ahead of you, Jesus tells two of his disciples. We're not sure which two, but let's just say it was Thaddeus and Bartholomew. Because they do nothing in the gospel anyway. They're just standing around. So Thaddeus and Bartholomew are told by Jesus... To go to the village ahead of them. And Jesus tells them when they get to the village, there's going to be a donkey there. A young donkey tied, waiting for you. It's been planned. Jesus called ahead and ordered this donkey. It's no accident that Jesus is on a donkey. Now, this this week that we're beginning today, we call Holy Week. But it's also Passover for Jesus and his disciples in the Gospels today. It is estimated that Jerusalem, a city that normally in Jesus' day had about 40,000 people, would swell to over 250,000 people this week, the week of Passover. 
The crowd that greeted Jesus was a lot of locals, but a whole lot of -of out-of-towners to preparing for this most holy week that they had traveled from the corners of the Roman Empire to come to Jerusalem and celebrate. When they gathered together, they would always remember their ancestors. When you come from out of town to gather with family for holidays, you tell stories, you remember, and they would tell those stories that we read about in the Hebrew Scripture. Especially the story that Passover remembers, that moment when Moses, led by the power of God, took their ancestors up out of Egypt, defeating the empire of Egypt and leading them to become a new nation. And once more, while the Jews gathered in their holy city in mass to celebrate, more than once when they gathered to celebrate this political revolution that defeated Egypt and created their nation, they would, well, they'd get ideas as they told stories, as they had little house meetings, small group conversations with one another. They'd share stories about what Roman oppression looked like back home. Maybe at other times it was Persia or other empires, but they would always tell those stories when they got together for Passover. And they would hear the stories of their faith. They would retell that defeat of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And then they'd realize that if there was any time that was perfect for a rebellion, it was Passover. There's the historical story, but all the people are here as well. We outnumber them at Passover, so they grab some swords, they get on some horses, they charge the occupying army leading a revolt. More than once, this would happen. Some charismatic, messianic figure would stand up and give a speech, and the people would be rallied, and they'd ride off into the distance trying to kill their oppressors. And more than once, the occupying armies like Rome would squash these attempted rebellions. And the punishment often for those who led the revolts was public crucifixion so that everyone could see what happened if you stood against Rome. In order to prevent these uprisings from happening, Rome began to get some ideas. Historians tell us what Matthew doesn't have to tell his readers because his readers knew it too well. That Roman leaders would have a show of power at Passover, reminding the Jews who was in charge and what would happen if they got out of line. In Jesus' time, it was the custom of Pilate, who was the Roman governor, to come from his seaside estate where he lived most of the time and travel from there to Jerusalem to stay in the Jewish king's palace. But he wouldn't travel alone and come in quietly. He would gather an army together, organize a parade, a triumphal procession into Jerusalem. A show of force with cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, their Roman leather armor, helmets, weapons, There would be banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting with metal and gold, marching, drums, and the governor pilot at the end of the parade riding atop a white war horse. The message of this parade was not easily missed. Don't mess with Rome. And usually the people got the message. As Passover week began, as people came from the four corners of the Jewish diaspora and came to Jerusalem to worship, that Sunday two parades were organized. On one side of town was Pilate's Roman army procession with pomp, power, and intimidation. And the other side was Jesus riding humbly on a donkey. (coughs) 
Now, Matthew, who tells us this story from the gospel, wants us to be sure of two things. First, yes, Jesus planned this. This is a planned political action. Jesus knew what he was doing. And second, that Jesus' action wasn't just pulled out of thin air, but was inspired by ancient Jewish prophetic texts from the prophet Zechariah, to be specific. The quote that we read this morning in our text is from the prophet Zechariah. Tell the daughters of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, the original passage goes on from there. It continues uh, to read from Zechariah 9, verse 10. He will cut off this king who comes on a donkey, will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. See, this is no ordinary king, the prophet says. This is a humble king riding on a donkey. Not a king on a war horse riding with power and pomp and intimidation, but a king who through his humility will banish war from the land. A king who will stand up to the chariots and the war horses and get rid of the war bows. This is a humble king of peace who will defeat the war mongering kings of the empire. And this is the way of our king's kingdom. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday sets the stage for the rest of the week. Humbly, nonviolently, peacefully, Jesus stands up to the powers of the world, the powers that occupy and intimidate the people of God, the powers of sin and oppression, of greed and war and corruption. And Jesus will humbly ride into their town, mocking their shows of power through his humility. He will turn over tables in the temple and drive out money changers, but he will not organize an army. He will not lower himself to the violent tactics of the kingdoms of this world. Instead, he will dine with those who will betray him. He will give his betrayer from his own hands bread and wine. He will walk willingly to his arrest and into his trial and up to his execution and peacefully yet powerfully he will die. And through his death he will show another way, a better way, the way he called the kingdom of God. Now a few weeks ago as we began the Lord's Prayer, we looked at that first petition of the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, at the end of the prayer, we return again to this theme of kingdom. For yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a strong conclusion to the prayer. And it reminds us once more the way our prayer life and our world should be organized. Because being a Christian is not about my kingdom and my will. It's not about the kingdoms of this world becoming successful. But about aligning our kingdoms and our wills to the will and kingdom of God. And the kingdom and the power and the glory belong not to any human power or plan, none of our projects or princes or presidents or any personality, but the power belongs to God. For thine is the kingdom, we pray. And what does that kingdom look like? It looks like a king who rides on a donkey. It looks like a king who, though he could have led a violent rebellion, the people surely would have joined in. He chose not to. 
It looks like a king who will stand up to the powers of this world by giving his own life. Thus making a mockery of their anger and their fear and their lust for power and violence. What does the kingdom of God look like? It looks like a king who refuses the gimmicks and games of our world and instead chooses humility, peace, and love. And through these actions, by refusing to give into the powers of the world, our king stands up and opens for us the door to new life. For the kingdoms and the powers of this world do not, the the kingdom and the power of this world does not belong to the powers of this world, but to our King, King Jesus. And so Matthew calls out from the words of the prophet to us today, behold, this is your king. Tell the daughters of Zion, tell the world, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble. Mounted on a donkey, he will cut off the chariots and the war horses. The battle bow will be cut off and he shall command the world not through intimidation or guilt or fear, but through peace. The king who rides on a donkey leads us in peace. Hosanna to the son of David, we proclaim. Blessed is the one who comes In the name of the Lord, all kingdoms, all power, all glory belong to our king. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Amen and amen. Let us prepare to come to the table of the Lord. As we sing number 420, I come with joy.